Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Bad Taste Crime Cast, and I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the show. We're here. We're back we're again this week. Doing it. <laughs> doing it still. Mm-hmm. Doing it not not quite so live. <laughs> uh, we've got a great show for you guys today. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Also, I hope you're doing okay out there. <laughs> <laughs> is everybody still doing okay? Everybody's I mean, still doing all right? As okay as we can be when the entire world is <laughs> collapsing down around us. I know. It's like every time we come together to record, we're like scratching at the last little pieces of humanity. Like, please. I know. And it's please. like, I want to acknowledge things that are happening, but also I don't mm. want that to consume every bit of my life. You know what I mean? Yes. I have to take a moment and meditate. So I take that moment to meditate on murder <laughs> yeah. and do my oh research my for the show. <laughs> it's true. It's weird how, like, literally doing murder research has become an escape from my everyday, like, mundane, annoying stuff. Because you guys, I mean, obviously, we come to you every other week with stories we hope will entertain and educate but like janelle and i got some real life shit going on that is uh all consuming yeah (laughs) sometimes i mean so between jobs school i do a lot of like volunteer nonprofit work outside of my nonprofit job so it's like what am i doing with my life (laughs) oh you know yeah yeah so you know things that are happening in our current situation affect my job and my outreach Mm -hmm. work greatly so it's kind of like i can't escape so (laughs) this is like good to give me unfortunately um researching someone's death is good to give me like a moment to like stop being inside my head and thinking about stuff all the time (laughs) allows you to center yourself yes Um, All right, so we're going to do some centering of our own and head over to the newsroom. 
So this week, our story comes from Jamaica, uh, where a 56-year-old bishop named Winston Campbell has been arrested and charged with rape and obtaining money by false pretense after allegations surfaced that he raped two women and these two women had visited the church and he was telling the women that the activity was necessary in order to cast out demons. <sighs> Guys. Yeah. Guys. <laughs> yep. Um, he also charged the two women with the costs associated uh, with like the arrangements for this, you know, Wait, quote unquote, <laughs> demon casting out. Yeah. He was charging them money. Are you kidding me right now? For this. No. This is like... Not at all. Why? Okay. I'm sure everybody knows my feelings on organized religion by now. But like, why are we blindly being like, you know what? Okay. Yup. That sounds good. And and you want me to pay you? Cool. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's one of these things that's like... um, And we talk a lot about trusting people in some sort of position of power um this is actually going to come up when we talk about our netflix a little later but Mm -hmm. you kind of have this just natural uh trusting nature like humans have what's called a default to truth and so for somebody i'm sure who is uh very religious that they would trust whatever the bishops or their priest or whatever is telling them. So if they come to you and say, you've got demons in your possess and the only way to get them out of your body is to have sex with me, I feel like there's probably part of them that's like, this doesn't sound right, but he's in charge. Like, I don't know. I'm not versed in, like, religious uh, specifics. So it sounds sounds about right, you know? It's, Mm -hmm. I don't know. The rapes allegedly happened between 2014 and 2018. Like I said, after the bishop told the women they were possessed by demons and needed, quote unquote, special healing. He has been offered $2 million bail and was ordered to stop preaching until the case has come to a close. Now, Campbell's defense attorneys, of course, are fighting very hard to discredit the claims of these women, saying that they were of sound mind when all of this was happening, and they kind of called into question the validity of the claims, and the bishop himself is due back in court in July. But it's just one of these situations that's like, really? Like, you couldn't even come up with a better ruse, I guess. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. If you think about where they live, and the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the poverty rate and how people rely on, so, like, social services like that and things like that. I'm sure there's way more people being taken advantage of, not just in a sexual manner. So, I Oh, know. I'm sure. I'm, yeah. Ah! Churches! Yep. <laughs> Sorry to start Praise. out this episode with total outrage. I know. Well, this whole episode <laughs> is just going to be an episode of pure, unadulterated rage. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. It really will be. It really will be. 
let's continue the rage as we move on to Netflix and Kill. This week, we are talking about a brand new documentary on Netflix called Athlete A. Now, on the surface, the story follows this group of reporters from the Indianapolis Star as they broke the story about the uh, cover-up of sexual assault allegations within USA Gymnastics and um, as they broke the story about abuse allegations against Larry Nassar, who was accused of assaulting at least 250 young women and girls all the way back to 1992, he did eventually admit to 10 of those claims. In 2017, he was sentenced to 60 years in prison when he pled guilty to child pornography charges. He then got a 175 years in 2018 after pleading guilty to seven counts of sexual assault of minors. And then a short time later in 2018, NASA received another 40 to 125 year sentence in prison when he pled guilty to three counts of sexual assault. But as I said, that is kind of just on the surface. It really is more of this like, larger look at USA Gymnastics as a whole and kind of how in the US, we've really fostered this culture of abuse to girls, young girls getting into gymnastics to succeed. And how easily somebody like Larry Nasser can go in and be able to continue his abuse kind of unchecked. Uh, now, Janelle, I'm sure you have have some thoughts on this. What are you thinking? Um, now, I you know, I did watch another like short Dateline kind of um, take on this a while back when it first came out. Um, but <laughs> I know a lot of people who are like in the dance world and gymnastics and things like that, and unfortunately, this is extremely common. And I know that they talked a lot about the parents being present and things like that, but it's like the, the turning a blind eye in all aspects of this is what enrages me the most. Like the parents are oblivious. The other coaches are oblivious. Like everybody's just like, I don't see it. Put the blinders on. And it's just so fucking frustrating. I, yeah. And people wonder why yeah. I was really into anarchism when I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> it's just like, burn right. it all oh down! <laughs> um, so yeah. lately, and you this, know. <laughs> this story is like, like I said, it's so much more. Larry Nasser was kind of the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. When it comes to USA Gymnastics as an organization. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. He'd been abusing uh, girls for years and years and years. But... You know, when they look back and they, they did an interview with uh, somebody who was a gymnast in the like late 80s, early 90s, and she talks about this idea of people in the U.S. wanting to win at absolutely any cost. And if we were to think about it in a way that was including sacrificing our young – which is what that is. Yeah. Um, when we force these girls to compete on injuries, I mean, we're talking about psychological abuse regarding weight issues is talked mm -hmm. about a lot. Um, so I mean, it goes beyond sexual abuse. It's, there's a lot of psychological abuse to get these girls trained to kind of do what they want that was actually brought over from, uh, where was it? It was like, Ukraine. Uh, 
Yeah, the Ukraine, very intense ways of training. Oh, yeah. That if we were to think about it as sacrificing our young to win, we probably would have a very different outlook on the way this training takes place. I don't know. I The way I feel about organized sports, too, is much like the way I feel about organized religion. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> what is the difference? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and see, for me, I I feel like I probably have a different outlook because I've been involved in organized sports for most of my life mm-hmm. and on different teams and different things. Now, granted, it wasn't at like an Olympic level, but I did do things like club volleyball, which is a little bit more intense than just like your normal school sports. Mm-hmm. But I never felt like a pressure to like compete on an injury or, you know, that I wasn't, I was too fat. And so like my, if I lose weight, my jumping is going to get better. You know what I mean? Like it's never any, it was never, to me, it was never anything like that. And I definitely think when you get into these competing at national levels and competing at world levels, it becomes far, far more um, intense. So I don't know. I just have trouble with it because it's, it's really self-aggrandizing the coaches And Mm -hmm. that's a troublesome for me. You're using preteens and teen girls as basically workhorses. And you're teaching them all of these very, very negative, negative things about their body image and subservience. And it's just, (laughs) yeah, I just can't. I mean, I played tennis a significant portion of my life and... There is some of that in, um, like, singles tennis, for sure. Uh, A lot of Mm -hmm. body shaming and image issue stuff. But I don't know. I feel like... Yeah, and I think it's... it's, It should be fun. It's far more prevalent in these... (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. But I do think stuff like that is far more prevalent in the sports where body is like a huge focus in things like gymnastics or, you know, even like ice skating Mm -hmm. or, you know, dance or anything like that. Whereas when you're playing volleyball, nobody really really gives a shit how you look. It's just, you know, can you jump high? Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there, you know, people have conversations about like the outfits and things that people wear for volleyball and for tennis, you know making comments about how it's inappropriate or whatever. And it's like, get over yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, But it's called Athlete A. It's on Netflix right now. Definitely worth watching. It was kind of refreshing to um, watch an actual documentary and not like a series. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I remember like I saw it pop up and I just like texted you. I'm like, girl. Yeah. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Yeah. And I think they did a very nice job. They have uh, several of the gymnasts that come on and speak. They have several Mm -hmm. of the parents, several of the reporters who originally broke the story. Yeah. Um, And it does a very nice job of kind of looking at the history of USA Gymnastics as a whole and linking that to kind of where they're at as an organization today. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about the sexual abuse of Larry Nasser, but kind of this whole story. Because it is about, I mean, it's about all of it. It's not just, he's not the only problem, yeah. obviously. So, 
definitely check it out. Um, be prepared because it's probably you'll probably feel a bit of a downer, but you know, <laughs> yeah, what isn't a bit of a downer on our show? Let's be real. Exactly, life is a downer. <laughs> mm. So Janelle, you want to tell us what we're talking about this week? Oh sure. Um, again, in keeping in theme with the downers. Um, (laughs) I was doing a little bit of research as I often do. Um, and I kept coming across this, uh, term linkage blindness and a lot of, um, some of the readings that I was doing. So I wanted to investigate that further because it's kind of a relatively new term in investigation. Um, and with what we've covered, you know, it's <laughs> a problem. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> so, is a big problem. If you're not familiar with what linkage blindness is, linkage blindness kind of occurs because uh, agencies, various police agencies, detective agencies within a state, across states, however you want to dice it, um, have this inability to access information from other agencies or they lack communication and cooperation between jurisdictions. And so cases aren't being linked together. So that's where the linkage blindness comes from. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about bef- uh, before the show when mm-hmm. I, you had said we were covering linkage blindness. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck that is. And I had to look <laughs> it up and thought, I do, I do know what this yes. is. I know exactly what this is. Yes. Um, so in a, psychoanalysis book is where I came across it first. And this is what was like listed. And I was like, Oh, so this quote is from that book. It's a key element is that serial murder victims share common characteristics of what are perceived to be prestigious, powerless or lower SES groups. So this kind of caught my attention. So SES groups are socioeconomical statuses. So you're thinking of people who are vagrants, um, sex workers, people who have, you know, varying LGBTQ stances, mm-hmm. children, single women, and elderly women. This is where the linkage blindness occurs initially. So it's linking characteristics between groups that are we don't pay attention to. So this is why I got really interested in this topic, because I've been doing a lot of uh, research in my job in um, the nonprofit stance on how to connect like educational opportunities to low income families. So there's a lot of crossover between the crimes that we cover and the work that I do in my job. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, we've covered a lot of cases where police departments aren't connecting the dots. It's an extremely widespread problem. And it's not just, you know, egotism, which is, you know, my initial thought. It has a lot to do with sometimes, like, lack of technology, um, inability Mm -hmm. to understand technology, the inability to recognize things uh, because of a lack of understanding of investigation uh, techniques. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot (laughs) – there's a lot going on when we talk about linkage blindness. Right. And – It really blends uh, well with, like, what's happening in the world right now. Like, what is the purpose of police? Um, Mm -hmm. We're, you know, we've been pretty critical of policing and investigation methods on this show because we do that research and we understand, we see the cases, and we see how all of these little small things that are overlooked or are not done properly or taken to the level that they need to be taken to can affect and change the outcomes of investigations. And, you know, whether or not 
a per like a serial killer per- kills two people or fifty people. Mm-hmm. It I think leakage blindness really highlights the large portion of laws in our system of investigation, and it really gives us an opportunity as outsiders to see like how can we make this better. We're like critiquing it with this show, and we want yeah. to make sure that people are aware so that we can change it and make it better so that we aren't having, you know, like a John Wayne Gacy situation. Yeah. Where there's, you know, 25 plus missing boys and nobody knows they're gone. We want to stop it before it starts. Right. And I think a lot of when you're talking about linkage blindness, um, some of it does come down to an inability or just no desire to change within a department. Like, I think that... yeah. A lot of our issues come down to just, like, not being able to teach old dogs new tricks or people just not wanting to listen to things that are new and better science or new and better technology. Like, yeah, change is okay, guys. (laughs) Change can sometimes be good. (laughs) Yeah. So I while I was doing my research, I came across this uh, other book that was written in tandem with the FBI, the Behavioral Analysis Unit. Um, the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes and Critical Incident Response Group. So this book is called The Serial Murder Multidisciplinary Perspectives for Investigators. Okay. Wow, that's a mouthful. It's an alpha. <laughs> you can read it online. There is a link um, in the notes that you guys can go and see and check it out and read it. It's very thick and very intensive. Mm. Um, but it identified a list of major areas of problems when it comes to linking cases together. And I thought that we could go over a couple of the key points in it so that you can kind of understand uh, the frame of reference when I go into the case that I'm going to discuss. Okay. So this is the list of major areas. So just identification of a serial murder series in and of itself, uh, problems with leadership, issues with task force organization, resource augmentation, uh, just general communication, data management, uh, misuse of analytical tools, not being able to uh, properly read a medical examiner or coroner's report. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, Just general administrative issues like paperwork issues, Mm -hmm. significant lack of training, and uh, officer assistance programs are not available to everybody. So I wanted to highlight leadership first because you kind of mentioned like teaching old dogs new tricks. Oh my God, yeah. It really generally comes from the top down when we're talking mm-hmm. about trying to link cases together. You have to get approval from your superiors in order to do a vast amount of things that you need to do to investigate a case. Right. So this is a quote from the guide here. And they're talking more specifically about serial murder cases, which if you want to be technical is like, I think over four people in a series, but this can yeah. apply to, you know, linking robberies together, pretty much anything. Right. Um, In serial murder cases, the actual investigation should be directed by competent homicide investigators who have the experience to direct and focus the investigative process. Law enforcement administrators should not run the investigation, but rather ensure that the investigators have the resources to do their job. Supervisors should also act as a buffer between investigators and the other levels of command. This is also taken a little bit further, um, including, like, talking to the press. Mm -hmm. There are several other strategies law enforcement executives may consider while preparing for intense investigations. So 
MOUs, or completing memorandums of understanding between different law enforcement agencies in order to obtain mutual support agreements and commitments of manpower, resources, and overtime, identifying all resources that may be needed during the investigation and maintaining detailed lists of available resources, establishing good working relationships with other departments prior to the crisis through networking, scheduled meetings, and joint training. Which I feel like is one of those really big things when we're talking about leadership, because that's going to come into play when you're talking about cross-departmental or even like a local department working with a state, working with a federal department. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, those relationships are so important. Yeah. So they also need to provide training opportunities in the latest techniques and methods of homicide investigation, which I think is a very key critical one that gets overlooked. Yes. Teachers are constantly having to do continuing education. So should detectives and investigators. I agree. How many times have we had these conversations about even like forensic science changing within the last 20 years? Like, Mm -hmm. that's all stuff that needs to be updated for the betterment of our criminal justice system, period. Like, yeah. My sister is a clinical laboratory scientist, and she has to do continuing education all the time because she works Mm -hmm. in a lab where she has to do specific testings for specific things. And that's not always the case on the levels of, you know, data labs that are for investigation purposes, which blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. And when you're talking, honestly, you're talking about in our modern day society, the rate Mm -hmm. at which technology and just knowledge of subjects is progressing um it's just the rate is increasing constantly and if you are not on top of the latest and greatest you are going to be left behind Mm -hmm. so they identified a few other things um that i thought was pretty interesting so Uh, It says the intense pressure in high profile investigations may at times decrease logical decision making, tunnel vision and impulsivity should be avoided. That was a pretty interesting remark. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Decrease logical decision making. (laughs) Uh, Law enforcement administration in each of the participating law enforcement agencies should present a unified front by agreeing to a written investigative strategy that outlines the investigative goals, the roles of the agencies, and establish a clear and concise chain of command. So if you've seen the shows on television where, you know, we have the rogue cop who's doing it by himself. Yeah. That's what can cause issues. You need to have a plan of attack and make sure everybody has their role and outline those roles very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. While law enforcement attracts positive individuals, this is a this one made me chuckle a little bit. While law enforcement attracts positive individuals with strong personalities, management should encourage all involved personnel to leave their egos at the door. This ensures that personality differences among investigators do not become a distraction to the investigation. Investigators who lack the ability to collaborate with colleagues can hinder the investigation and should not be assigned to investigative teams. I feel like that's just good life advice. Like, (laughs) just generally speaking, that's good life advice. (laughs) I feel like they tried to be like, y'all are real egotistical, but soften mm-hmm. that blow by saying, while there are some positive people, <laughs> you guys yeah. have overblown egos and you need to calm the fuck down. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So leadership is super duper critical and it is essential and it is make or break for a case. The other thing that I thought was very interesting. So I'm just going to highlight 
two other topics was data. We don't think about data when it comes to investigation necessarily. Like in terms for us in research purposes, definitely we need that data. Yeah. But we don't think about investigators and detectives needing the data or creating data as well because they are data creators when they're filing reports. Mm -hmm. So a common problem in serial investigation occurs when data is not entered into an electronic database in a timely manner. Useful leads are lost when investigators are overloaded with information. So they kind of list a couple suggestions to alleviate that. In order to avoid time lags, reports should be written as soon as the investigative lead is completed. If reports are not finished before the end of the investigator's shift, the lead investigator may not have time to review those reports. This will lead to a backlog of reports containing pertinent and timely investigative information. And you can extrapolate that further in terms of like, oh, I don't know, backlogged rape kits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Let's talk about that. If you simply just follow through with finishing Mm -hmm. your fucking investigation instead of leaving it open, we could connect, oh, I don't know, maybe a string of rapes to a person. Hmm. What a thought. (laughs) Yeah. Far more common, I think, than most people are willing to admit. Um, And especially Uh when you're talking about (laughs) officers like either dismissing claims of women or, you know, this comes into play too when you're talking about, especially a lot in like the cases from the like 60s to the 80s where you're talking about, oh, they were just a runaway or, you know, something like that. Oh, like, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> a thousand percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They also state that sufficient time should be allocated during work shifts to complete reports. Uh, information should be obtained, documented, and distributed in a standardized manner to maintain consistency among different agencies. Ideally, reports should be computer-generated to ease communication issues. So if you're thinking about a small, you know, like, local police group compared to a large county or a city, mm-hmm. they might not have the same computer processing abilities as, say, Chicago. So right, yeah, thinking about having something standardized. I thought this is pretty funny because of the way that they worded it, but a murder book or series of murder books should be created and maintained. Oh my murder God. books contain all of the pertinent investigative information and are traditionally in paper format, but can also be developed electronically. I was like, murder books? Um, <laughs> is, that a t- is that a technical term? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it is now, but, you know, they're just talking about having, like, a reference guide. And making that reference guide electronic so that people across different, um, you know, formats can uh, access it. So the last little bit that I kind of wanted to go over was training. This is a huge issue um, when it comes to police and investigators. We've heard it in the news. We've heard it in comparison to a ton of different jobs. Like, oh, for this job, you need... 1,200 hours of training, and for a, a cop, you need, like, 300 or something. Yeah. It goes hand-in-hand hand with the continuing education. Training continues to be an issue for all law enforcement departments. Complex homicide investigations, especially those involving serial murder cases, depend upon the experience and abilities of investigators to effectively conduct the investigation. With the retirement of many experienced homicide investigators, newer investigators need training and exposure to a wide range of investigative techniques. 
Attendees also suggest the utilization of standardized training for homicide investigators, crime analysts, and medical examiners. I didn't know that in certain states to be a medical examiner, you really don't need a whole lot of training. Nope. And to go from being a beat cop to a homicide investigator really is just like a pat on the back and like, all right, go for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. It's been... It's been really disgusting to see, you know, obviously it's like eight weeks of training to become a cop in most places. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you're talking about things like doctors and attorneys and yeah. a lot of these other professions where you're dealing social with workers. people's lives, social yeah. workers, you have to go to school for years. Like, how is it eight yes. weeks? And eight weeks isn't even the standard. I mean, it's like dependent mm-hmm. on what state you're in and where you're at and what jurisdiction. Exactly. Like, that's a little ridiculous. Exactly. So training is... I think is the biggest hurdle when it comes to linkage blindness because these yeah. cops are not being trained to look for patterns mm-hmm. and to really have the you know the knowledge that they don't, they don't have any experience and I think it's mind boggling that you don't have to have a degree to go into I know. policing I think that's insanity I think there yeah, needs I to agree. be way more like sensitivity training uh like they need to do social work training like there needs to be this very broad and very specific training that needs to be done yeah and maybe you know especially for investigators requiring a degree a bachelor's degree Mm -hmm. in you know like criminal analysis should be required because you are doing way more intensive work than just a regular cop out on the street yeah, and I do think like even thing it would also have an effect of sort of weeding out the people who just wanted to be a cop for, you know, the clout or for the honor mm-hmm. or whatever because I yeah. do think you get some of these people who are like I want to be a cop cuz I, you know, they're like the cool guys and if it only takes 8 weeks in a training program versus, you know, 4 to 6 years <laughs> to get a masters or something like I think mm-hmm. you would kind of weed out some of these potential problems. Yeah. And especially if you're working at, in a small town, you know, you're not going to come across, like, for the most part, major crimes and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's even easier to become a police officer and you require yeah. even less training if you're working in a small town, which is absolute insanity. Because guess yeah. what? Murder happens everywhere, guys. <laughs> yes, it does. Sure does. And a lot of the arguments that I've seen have to do with funding for training issues. But if we set standards for requirements to become a police officer, then you don't have to put so much into training. And you can have Mm -hmm. continuing educational training that spans the entire career. And maybe we would retain police officers for more than 20 years. You know, maybe they would stick in that profession if they didn't feel you know, overwhelmed by all the information that they're getting from day one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So now let's keep all of that in mind as I go into this sordid tale that I'm going to tell you. Oh, boy. So we live very close to Chicago. And the history of Chicago is really entwined with the inadequacies of the police department in that city. Oh, big time. Of course, um, amongst other things like, you know, politics and what have you. Yeah. But 
I mean, we've covered we've covered you know Burge. We've covered all of oh my gosh. these interesting, intricate things that have happened in Chicago. But this is probably by far the most um, difficult thing I've had to read, which mm-hmm. says a lot because I've been doing a lot of research about Chicago's uh, segregation history <laughs> recently. Yeah, because <laughs> it kind of goes in hand in hand with this. So we're going to be yeah. talking about. The 51 missing and or murdered black women in Chicago. Now, this has been in the news pretty recently, like in and out of the news. It resurfaced a couple of months ago. It's it's something that's been going on for a significant amount of time. It's a very assorted story. It goes back and forth a lot. But this has been happening and has been trying to be publicized by people in Chicago since 2001. Oh my gosh. So we're just going to keep that in mind because I'm going to kind of bounce around in the timeline a little bit. Okay. But just remember that this started occurring in 2001. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) So in April of 2019 last year, the FBI and the Chicago Police Department teamed up to create a task force to investigate the possible link between the deaths of over 50 women in Chicago. The task force was only formed after the enormous outcry from community groups and leaders from the south and west sides of Chicago. I don't know if you pay attention to the Chicago Tribune, but last year there was a couple months straight of marches happening in the south and west side Yes, over the missing uh, and murdered women. Yes, I do remember that. So a campaign grew out of this issue, and it was called Stop Taking Our Girls. And it's a grassroots campaign to raise awareness to the growing number of missing African-American women and girls within the city. This kind of started to gain traction, and these groups and these campaigns started to get assistance from the Murder Accountability Project to bring this issue to light so that it would be taken seriously by the Chicago Police Department and eventually Mm -hmm. would help to bring in the FBI. The Murder Accountability Project, I'll call it MAP a lot. It's a small nonprofit organization that was organized in 2015, and it's really dedicated to education, to Mm -hmm. educating Americans on the importance of accurately accounting for unsolved homicides. So they seek to obtain information from federal, state, and local governments about unsolved homicides, and they aim to publish that information so that it's accessible for everybody. But they also help in aiding um, specific investigations by collecting data and doing um, a lot of research and creating algorithms so that we can see all of these links between cases. So super great, amazing work that they do. MAP conducted an investigation and released a report titled Unsolved Female Strangulations in Chicago. Now, this is a quote from the report. A cluster of 51 unsolved strangulation homicides of Chicago women have characteristics suggestive of serial murder. Mm -hmm. They were identified by a computer algorithm known to detect serial killings. Case analysis show unnatural patterns of body recovery sites that were overwhelmingly out of doors in crimes with clearly sexual aspects of often involving sex workers or illicit drug users. So we're talking about the, you know, the people, the SESs that we mentioned before. Yeah. People who have low socioeconomic means. Mm -hmm. So what this algorithm essentially did was it went through 769,000 cases and grouped them together accordingly to various little tidbits of information Geographic location, sex, age, method of killing, all that stuff. 
They also used clearance rates as a major determining factor in the data, which if you don't know what a clearance rate is, that is the rate at which an investigation ends in an arrest or identification of a suspect. So not necessarily closing the case, but clearing it off their desk essentially is what it means. Yeah. Now there is a major issue with clearance rates and their data in and of itself, especially in the CPD. Uh, Chicago's clearance rate is about 61%, which is on par with the national average and is on the better side of clearance rates. However, if we extrapolate that information and break it down further, and we look at the method of killing, specifically strangulations, are on the lowest end with a clearance rate of only 20%. Yeah. I just want to, really quick, I just want to throw in two cents about clearance rates because Mm -hmm. they are very misleading. They are especially how they're reported in a lot of places when you're talking about things like sexual assault, for instance. Yes. You would see a case (laughs) considered cleared if the, for instance, attorney general opted to not prosecute and never told the victim about this. They can go in and say, oh, this case is cleared. Yep. And that makes their numbers look better. And it's kind of bullshit. And I think with some of this uh, more investigative reporting that's coming out, calling out some of these departments and jurisdictions that are doing that shit is kind of shining a light on it. But like, the clearance rates are one of these things that I'm kind of like, it's it's absolute bullshit. That's why when I said cleared off their desk, so to speak, that's, that's Mm -hmm. like an that's an inside joke. Like, if it's off your desk, it's not your problem. Right. There was, like, some stupid saying. It was, like, off my desk, out of my sight, out of my mind or something. Yeah. But that just goes to show you, like, the lack of empathy and the lack of wanting to, like, complete your fucking job. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the numbers. It is. In terms of um, clearance rates and... The murders of people who are considered like SES, like we're talking about homeless people, uh, drug users, sex workers. A lot of times the, you know, generalization for clearance is we brought in the information and we filed it. It's cleared. They don't put forth any more effort because they're a person who is of no consequence. Right, right. So that is the issue that we're running into with all of these cases. Yeah. And it's extremely frustrating because they mention illicit drug users and sex workers, and there is little to no evidence that almost all of the women were sex workers or drug users. Mm -hmm. And they say that shit because of where they live in the city, and it pisses me off. (laughs) Right, yeah. That is like the this is the same thing when a child goes missing. Oh, they're a runaway. Yeah. Oh, they live in the west side of Chicago. They must be a sex worker or a drug user. <laughs> right. Like, Which, no. by the way, <laughs> I just want to also put out there now: if you are underage and you're out there, you know, taking part in uh, sex work, you are considered a trafficked sex worker. Like you are considered mm-hmm. trafficked now, and that wasn't yeah. the case probably like even five years ago. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could keep going. Yeah. We'll just, you yeah, you it's, keep it's, going, Janelle. I could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's really changed in the past, I would say, maybe 10 years. Maybe. We'll get mm-hmm. at that. So they looked at cases, uh, the Murder Accountability Project looked at cases from 2001 until 2019. And obviously, that's 18 years of murder patterns. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the CPD previous to this year, 
was like vehemently exclaiming like that there's no way a serial killer is operating in the city. Now, I want to be the devil's advocate because of a couple of the cases cited in the report have been solved. And there were also a few of the cases that have been found that have been fully investigated and they were by somebody else. So there's a couple of cases that were included in this initial report that are not fitting into the pattern now. Mm-hmm. But that's only literally a handful in comparison to 51 cases. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The victims in the cases range from ages 18 to 58. Their bodies have been found throughout the city, but mostly on the south and west sides. They've been largely found in abandoned buildings or outside in alleys, within garbage cans, or in vacant lots. 76% of the victims were black, and 75% of the crimes had a clear sexual component to them. So I put the map in here, and you can link to it and really see there's a lot of clusters of these cases together, and... They're very, like, tight, and there's a, a, only a few that are, like, outliers outside of these clusters, and it's kind of insane to me to see how tightly compacted together most of these cases are mm-hmm. and how people are like, oh, well, there's nothing going on here. It's totally chill. It's like, no. Even I can tell just looking at the map how close in proximity to other cases there are within a year, two years, three years. Yeah. Where they were found, they were all strangled. It's like insane how Mm -hmm. police were not connecting these together previously. Yeah. I don't have training and I can see clear indicators of things that are very similar. Yeah. So... I wanted to highlight a couple of the major cases that were in the news so we can kind of give an idea of, like, what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the most, like, notorious case in all of the cases was Rio Rene Holyfield and Kiera Coles. Now, Rio Rene Holyfield was a 34-year-old who went missing in early of September 2018 and was found two weeks later dead in a garbage can. Her body was in a state of decomposition, and it was hard to determine the cause of death, but eventually it was ruled as asphyxiation. So she went missing, and her brother, I believe it was, immediately, like, went to the press and was like, this is not normal. She does not just, like, go off without her, you know, phone and not talk to anybody. So her case was highlighted in the news significantly. Okay. The other case, which was a very strange case was that of 27-year-old Kira Coles. Coles was last seen near her home in the south side of Chicago on October 2nd, 2018. She was pregnant at the time of her disappearance. Coles was last seen in a surveillance video on October 2nd, walking down the street outside of her apartment. She appears to be dressed for her job as a letter carrier with the U.S. Postal Service, though she did call in sick that day. Police discovered Coles's purse and cell phone left in her car and parked on the street where she was last seen. Kira Coles is described as being 5'4 and about 125 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. She has a tattoo of a heart on her right hand and a tattoo that says Lucky Libra on her back. Her case was highly publicized because she was pregnant and because she was a postal worker. Yeah. The interesting about 
thing about this case is the U.S. Postal Service opened their own personal investigation. Really? Because they're a federal agency. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So there was technically two investigations open on the disappearance of Kira Coles. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of information about her disappearance, and her name is brought up specifically a lot because she was pregnant when she went missing. Yeah. So here's a couple of the other ones that were uh, a little bit more well-known. Shantia Smith was a 26-year-old. She went missing uh, in May of 2018, and her body was found weeks later in a garbage can not far from her home, which seems to be like a pattern. It's People are being found really close to where they live. Yeah. Um, One of the sadder ones that um, I came across was Sideria Davis, who is a 15-year-old. She's one of the younger victims. Uh, She was found May 11th on the floor of a vacant East Garfield Park apartment building in the 200 block of South Hamlin. She was reported missing after last being seen on April 25th, leaving her West Garfield Park home, which was six blocks from where her body was found. So we see this pattern of people going missing, leaving their homes, and then being found very close to where they lived. Yeah. And again, all of these are like strangulation, asphyxiation. They're all being found sexually assaulted for the most part um, when they say clear sexual component. And they're all being found in like vacant lots, garbage cans, down alleyways, like literally just dumped like trash. Now, there was a suspect brought... Charlie Booker May was suspected in both the Smith and Davis cases. He was last seen with both of them, um, but he has not been charged with these cases. I don't understand really what happened with that because there were a couple uh, news articles saying that Charlie Booker May was brought in for questioning, that he was last seen with Sideria Davis and with Shantia Smith. Okay. But nothing has been done. Yeah. The other messed up part of this is he has been convicted and charged in several other cases involving stabbing a woman, raping a woman, shooting another woman. Mm -hmm. His victims had survived in those other cases, but we can see a clear pattern of violence against women. Yeah. Granted, he shot one of them and stabbed the other one, so there's a little bit different methodology, but we can Mm -hmm. definitely see he had a sexual component to both of those cases. And those were cases that happened previous to the disappearances of Smith and Davis. So yeah, I feel like they watched him, but then kind of like passed it off as like, because he, the other two victims that he um, assaulted and stabbed were like women that he was involved with. So maybe they passed it off as like a domestic violence kind of an issue. Yeah. Now, just to play a little devil's advocate, I will Mm -hmm. say it's entirely possible that the police, um, I mean, just because you were the last one seen doesn't, Mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't hold up in court if he were to be brought to court. And it's entirely possible that they don't have additional evidence or that they do have additional evidence, but they didn't find it because of lack of investigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have happened with that, too. I just think it's, you know, unfortunately, the just being the last person seen with them is not enough in a court of law. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, who knows? But I have a feeling we probably may never know whether he was fully investigated or not, you know? Yeah. I wanted to highlight a quote from an article because I feel like it really shows 
the issues with investigation within the Chicago Police Department, especially of peoples in the South and West Side, especially of black people, especially of black women. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be very hard for me to read because I was in a fit of rage when I read this newspaper article the first time. So it says, quote, Deputy Chief of Detectives Brendan Denahian said the idea of an assailant who's skipping the white prostitutes to kill the black ones doesn't make any sense, referring to the fact that many of the women found are believed to have been sex workers. Now, I understand that there is a need and a want for this police department to be like, well, they were participating in risky behavior. But the sex worker drug user bullshit line does not apply here because there is no evidence that any of them were sex workers and there is no evidence that any of them were doing drugs at the time. Yeah. It also doesn't even fucking matter if they were sex workers or drug users. They are people mm-hmm. just because their life circumstances are not great does not define them. And it sure as hell doesn't mean that they can be murdered without justice. So I agree. When I read articles like that and I hear fucking police officers saying, oh, it doesn't make sense why a bunch of black women are being murdered. Why would you skip over all the white prostitutes and just kill the black ones? I just want to, like, grab them by the collar and just yell in their face, why are you so dumb? Yeah. It's like, it is it is a well-known fact that people who are homeless – people who live in poor areas, people who are BIPOC people, people who are LGBTQ are targeted and become victims because a lot of these people know that they won't be investigated. Right. It happens in so many cases. And even when you're talking about things like serial murder, something like consistently killing people of one race is considered a pattern like that actually does make a whole fucking lot of sense (laughs) like that's that's what they call a pattern i don't you know and it's just so frustrating (sighs) because he's the deputy yeah he's the guy in charge and he's the one saying this shit and it's like you obviously have no clue right right so i wanted to kind of end this by Listing all of the names of the women who were involved in this MAP accountability project investigation, I guess we'll call it. And this was written by one of the victim's brothers, this little two lines before the list of names. And I thought it was a really beautiful thing to share because it's like, we so often say, oh, it's like, oh, it's 50 missing women. And we don't ever really speak their name. Mm -hmm. And... I actually did have a pretty big issue with trying to find more reports about the women on this list. Some of them were never in the news. Yeah, that's crazy. They were never in the news. And I don't understand that. Um, A lot of them are very young. uh, And you would think that they would be like, there's a missing 18-year-old. There's a missing 20-year-old. Like, kids. Young, young kids. So... I'm going to read this, and then I will share some resources if you want to help get involved or read more about it. So, Okay. This is the quote. No justice for the 51 who now lie forever frozen in time, six feet underground, or as ashes after cremation. 
So for each of the 51, let us invoke this resuscitation. Say her name. Say all of their names. And I'm sorry, there's going to be a couple on here that are going to be a little bit difficult for me to pronounce. (laughs) Angela Mariana Ford. Charlotte W. Day. Winifred Shines. Brenda Cowart. Elaine Bonetta. Saudia Banks. Bessie Scott. Gwendolyn Williams. Jody Grissom. Lorraine Harris, Deli Jones, Celeste Jackson, Nancy Walker, Tarika Jones, Linda Green, Rosenda Baraccio, Latonya Keeler, Latricia Hall, Lucy Set Thomas, Ethel Amerson, Michelle Davenport, Tamala Edwards, Makalava Williams, Precious Smith, Denise V. Torres, Wanda Hall, Yvette Mason, Shaniqua Williams, Margaret E. Gomez, Antoinette P. Simmons, Kelly Serf, Veronica Frazier, Marianne Zitkowski, Teresa Bunn, Hazel Marion Lewis, Genevieve Mellis, Charlene Miller, Latoya Banks, Shannon Williams, Vanessa Reykjavik, LaFonda Sue Wilson, Kwanda L. Kreider, Angela Prophet, Pamela Wilson, Velma Howard, Diamond Turner, Catherine Saderfield Buchanan, Valerie Marie Jackson, Laura Dawn Harbin, Nicole Linnell Ridge, and Rio Renee Holyfield. If you're interested in learning more about this, you can visit the STOP campaign on Facebook. Um, you can also go to the blackandmissing.com, which is a Black and Missing Persons Foundation. Uh, the Westside Health Authority also has additional information on how to stay safe on the streets. The Missing Persons Awareness Network, or if you know of somebody who is missing, These are really great resources if you don't know where to turn to if the police aren't doing their job. If you have information on any of the cases we talked about above, call the Chicago Police Department Special Victims Unit at 312-747-8274. And I'd also like to give a little shout out to Congressman Bobby L. Rush, because he literally, I don't know if you've seen him in the news lately, because yeah. there's been a lot of issues with <laughs> with his office um, and yep. cops disrespecting him. But mm-hmm. he was out there on the street, marching with all these organizations, yelling at the Chicago Police Department to get off their asses and investigate these missing women cases. And he's just like a sweet, wonderful old man who just like is a delight to listen to when he talks. <laughs> but... If you're interested in helping, you can go to um, Congressman Bobby L. Rush's website, and they have a lot of links to local area information where you can volunteer, help assist. But we'll also link all this information as well. So if you want to get involved, um, do it. Volunteer. Do the things. Do all of the things. That's my case. (laughs) Guys. That was intense. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so my story this week, unlike most episodes, doesn't actually start with the story of how, like, a murderer came to be, but instead actually starts with a reporter, a man named Thomas Hargrove, who worked for Scripps Howard News Service that was, it was later called Scripps Washington Bureau. Now, to cut to the chase, Hargrove currently studies murder data, along with a few other data sets, and he did this great interview with the Marshall Project, and Hargrove explains how he kind of became interested in creating new ways to use this data. Now, ultimately, it would take three years before Hargrove's bosses gave him the green light to kind of work on a reporting project that at the time was called Murder Mysteries. (laughs) And it's not a super creative title, but it does get to the point. And I will actually put a link to, thanks to the Wayback Machine, I was able to find one of the original copies of this that they had put online. So I'll put a link to that in the notes as well. It's good reading and covers a whole lot of information if you've got, like, you know, a Saturday to spend drinking coffee and reading the Murder Mysteries report. (laughs) But he was uh, convinced that, quote, it might be possible to teach a computer how to spot likely victims of serial killers using this publicly available database. Now, in 2010, he was given only one year for his research, and he began looking into all of the unsolved murders that had happened since 1980, which at the time totaled around 185,000. Now it's somewhere around 250,000, somewhere in there. Using primarily FOIA requests, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, Hargrove and his team were able to collect thousands of data points on every aspect, including type of victim, murder weapon, clearance rates by police departments, and much, much more, as we've mentioned earlier. They then combined all of this information into a searchable database that they made available to the public online. Now, I will say, you mentioned earlier the Murder Accountability Project. This is actually sort of the start of that organization. It kind of happened by chance, where... Thomas Hargrove had seen a report from the FBI that kind of included just this broad amount of murder data that really got him thinking. Now, uh, one of the ways that they were able to aggregate some of this data, and you kind of touched on this in your research, was they were trying to figure out how to aggregate this data and then figure out how to interpret it. And they actually used serial murders who had been caught to sort of fine tune the algorithm. And they used primarily the Green River killer, Gary Leon Ridgway, which I was trying to think, have we have we talked about Gary Leon Ridgway on the show? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I know he's like kind of one of the more 
he's considered one of the more uh you know mainstream well-known killers yeah, I mean, I, i'm sure we've like made reference but i don't think we've ever discussed the case in detail yeah yeah okay so for those who don't know or don't remember gary leon ridgeway was a serial murderer that was active in the 80s and the 90s he was convicted of murdering 49 women most of them sex workers and runaways one of their once once their method of cluster analysis was finely tuned which they basically took all of this data from Ridgeway's known victims entered it into the computer and they would kind of see if the data they were receiving matched up with the victim uh, clusters for Ridgeway. And once they got it down to like a T, that's kind of how they knew, okay, this is working. So once they had this method of what's called cluster analysis, finely tuned, they were able to look at hundreds of clusters of victims and noted that, quote, Ridgway's victims formed only the third largest cluster among women. According to The New Yorker, quote, one might be Boston women 15 to 19 years old and handguns, or another cluster might be New Orleans women 20 to 50 strangulation. So that was that's kind of an example of like the cluster data that they were looking at. When they looked further into these clusters, they actually discovered one around Gary, Indiana, which we like to call the karmic place. (laughs) (laughs) We sure do. (laughs) Right? Consisting of 15 women who had been strangled starting around the mid-90s. Now, as I said, the whole point of this project was really to encourage police departments and law enforcement to look at this data and consider the possibilities. It's not necessarily hard proof of anything, but to be able to look at this and say, well, you know, maybe if we compare this to things that we have reported on file, we need to look at some extra things, extra victims, you know, whatever it may be. So... Hargrove and his team got in touch with Gary PD and tried to explain what they had found. However, once they had been presented with the data, officials completely denied that the department had any unsolved serial killings. Hmm. Now, again and again, Hargrove reached out to the local authorities trying to explain the patterns, mainly that there were many young Black women strangled in abandoned properties and that there was a group of elderly Black victims strangled at their homes. They were also able to specifically name victims, but authorities continued to deny that it was the work of a serial murderer and completely dismissed the data. Now, this worked until a man named Darren Dion Van entered the picture. Hmm. Van was born in 1971 in Indiana, but he moved to North Carolina in the early 90s. In 1991, he actually enlisted in the Marine Corps, but was discharged only two years later. There isn't actually much known about the reason he was discharged, but a lot of people surmise that it was kind of due to his behavior As you will soon see, at some point following his short military career, Van got married to a woman who was 30 years older than himself, and the two of them moved to Austin. They stayed shortly there, and then they moved back to Gary, Indiana, and the two actually stayed married for about 30 years 
But during that time, Van exhibited some pretty erratic behavior. Van had started seeing other women. And in 2004, he was charged with a Class D felony for holding a woman hostage with a gas can and a lighter. I had to look into this a little more and found later that he was actually threatening to set himself on fire as he held this woman hostage. (laughs) Yeah. So for this, he served 90 days in jail. And then following his release, he moved back to Austin. But this behavior really continued uh, when he got back to Austin in Van, where he was using an escort service, met a woman, and went to an apartment where he raped, beat, and choked her. Um, She did live. She was not murdered. But he was arrested and indicted for the crime in 2008. And he was given five years in prison, which would kind of be the last straw for his wife, who at that point decided to divorce him. Now, Van was released from prison in 2013. And at the time, he was required to register as a sex offender before returning to Gary. And the officials in Austin kind of deemed him a low uh, threat risk. And so he (laughs) was kind of able to, you know, fly under the radar, so to speak. But... By this time, in 2013, escort services had gotten a little bit more sophisticated, so Van started using Backpage.com in order to meet women, which... Oh, Backpage. Backpage, (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, and this goes into a lot of the laws surrounding sex workers, which we could do a whole other show on. And I think we have, actually. (laughs) Maybe. Yes, we have. (laughs) But in October 2013, 14, it was Backpage that he used to meet and hire 19-year-old Africa Hardy. Now, the two of them went to a Motel 6 in Hammond for the evening, but Hardy's employer, or the woman had kind of who had arranged for the two of them to meet, became suspicious after a series of texts from Van and decided to go and to go to the motel and check on things. When she arrived at the motel, instead of finding Van and Hardy, they only found Africa Hardy strangled to death in the motel bathtub. They immediately called police who were able to trace Hardy's movements back to Van, who, of course, in short time was arrested Now, when they found him, Van was carrying Hardy's pink cell phone. So at this point, he kind of sensed that the jig was up and almost immediately confessed to the murder of Africa Hardy. But Gary, Indiana authorities were in for a surprise when he not only confessed to Hardy's murder, but also allegedly confessed to the murders of six other women. Following his arrest, uh, Van took police on So it was like kind of a tour of murder sites or of at least body disposal (laughs) sites. Yeah. Yeah. Showing them literally where all the bodies were buried. Um, So I just want to go through the list of known victims. 27-year-old Tanya Gatlin who had been reported missing in January 2014. She was found in an abandoned house in Gary, along with uh, the body of 53-year-old Sonia Billingsley, who had been reported missing in February 2014. 
28-year-old Tierra Beatty had gone to meet a friend in January 2014 and had never returned. Her remains were found in an abandoned house. 36-year-old Christine Williams was reported missing in February 2014 after her mother-in-law had failed to hear from her. Her remains were found in an abandoned house. 41-year-old Tracy Martin was reported missing in January 2014. Her body was discovered in an abandoned house. 35-year-old Anith Smith was reported missing October 2014 after not having been seen for two days. Her body was found in an abandoned house. And of course, 19-year-old Africa Hardy, uh, who we mentioned originally, was found in the strangled to death in the bathtub of a Motel 6. Okay. If you notice, those dates, um, for the most part, were within, like, two months of each other. It was all, Mm -hmm. like, January and February of 2014. And then no activity from him that they know of until 2014, October 2014. Now, initially... Van was charged with two counts of murder for the deaths of Africa Hardy and Anith Jones, to which he pled not guilty. And then there was some discussion as to whether or not the state would seek the death penalty, which they ultimately did. But there were a variety of delays uh, and postponements and court dates and hearings, making this process stretch for quite a bit of time. In March 2016, Van was finally charged with the murders of Tanya Gatlin, Tierra Bailey, Christine Williams, Sonia Billingsley, and Tracy Martin, with the death penalty sought for each case. Now, of course, Van's attorneys tried very hard to get any break that they could get, including filing a claim that the death penalty in Indiana was unconstitutional. Oh, boy. A claim which was denied. I mean, they tried really hard. It just didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) They also attempted to get the cases split into two with the murders of Africa Hardy and Anith Jones and it to be like run in one proceeding. And then the other five murders to be run in a different proceeding, a motion that was also denied, allowing for the cases to be run as one court case. Now, after all of this... In order to avoid the death penalty, Van pled guilty to all seven murders in exchange for the death penalty being dropped. He was convicted of the seven murders in May 2018 and was sentenced to concurrent life sentences with no possibility of parole. In the meantime, now in the midst of all of this, Van actually received additional charges unrelated to the murders. Now, of course, this case had garnered quite a bit of publicity and Van's mugshot was like put on the TV and in the newspaper. He was actually recognized by a woman who had been attacked by Van years earlier in 2014, kind of around the same time all of these murders were happening. Oh. Again, after meeting the woman through Backpage... Van lured her to his brother's home where she was repeatedly raped. The woman attempted to escape and fought back. So Van actually tied her up and then raped her again. The whole attack lasted approximately two hours. He then gagged her and put a hood on her head and then forced her into a car. Van began driving around. And meanwhile, 
The woman was able to remove the gag from her mouth and started screaming for help. People in the area heard her scream and came to help their help her. And one of them at the time had a gun and shot the gun into the air, which, oh, wow. yeah, which sort of spooked Van so much that he got out of the car and fled on foot. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Most people don't get involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I was reading that like, kudos to you guys for hearing this woman screaming and coming to help. Cause it sounded like it was more than one person. I was like, yes, that's good citizenship right there. <laughs> Seeing Van Zimmons on the news, the woman went to the police, and in 2016, he was charged with rape, attempted murder, criminal deviant conduct, and criminal confinement. Now, I want to go back to, just to close this out a little bit, I actually want to go back to the Murder Accountability Project. So as I said in the beginning, Thomas Hargrove had gotten in touch with Gary P.D., who had denied they had any unsolved serial killings at the time. Now, when he was in the process of getting in touch with Gary PD, he actually was able to connect with a deputy coroner who had agreed with his assessment and even added a couple of additional victims to his list. Although the police department refused to listen to her either. And it's a little infuriating to me to have people coming to you with data on a silver platter saying here, like just I mean, even just taking the time to look into them, mm-hmm. but then having a police force turning completely turning a blind eye and saying, eh, nah, I don't think so. We're fine. <laughs> it would actually take uh, four years after Thomas Hargrove presented this data to the Gary PD before Van Darren Dion Van was arrested. So if you think about it, those murders in 2014 probably would not have happened had they listened to him. Just saying. Yep. <laughs> Just saying. That tracks, unfortunately. <laughs> right. But, you know, this investigative... I, wa- I almost wonder if it was this feeling of like, oh, we've got this investigative reporter coming in here trying to tell us how to do our jobs. Like, Probably. I could see, <laughs> I could see that being an issue, but... Either way, after years of work on a cluster algorithm and extensive use of geographic profiling, Hargrove started the nonprofit Murder Accountability Project in 2015. Now, this is straight from the Murder Accountability Project's website, quote, The project's board of directors is composed of retired law enforcement investigators, investigative journalists, criminologists, and other experts on various aspects of homicide. At this site, you can determine how often police departments in your community clear a homicide through arrest. You can also explore individual cases reported to the FBI or obtained by the Murder Accountability Project under local Freedom of Information Acts. You can look for patterns in the occurrence of specific types of homicides and how often police identified the offender. You can find the website at murderdata.org, and I really encourage all of you to do so, especially if you're into data. Like, it's really pretty data. <laughs> like, it's set up in a really, really beautiful way. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily into data. <laughs> yeah. So much is just knowing everything to be a know-it-all. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, there are people who are really into, like, beautiful-looking charts and graphs, and I kind of like shit like that. Oh, yeah. But I know plenty of those people. <laughs> 
it's it's fairly easy to use. It's interesting because murderdata.org is actually used a lot by folks on web sleuths mm-hmm. uh, when they're trying to find these patterns in areas as trying to si- solve these cold cases, um, some of which have no suspects and some of which have literally thousands of suspects. I think I remember reading in Gary Ridgway's case there he was one of like 8000 suspects in that case so you know any possible way of trying to narrow this down is going to be helpful and i do appreciate the fact that this investigative reporter decided to he's retired now this is all he does so I, I do appreciate him taking kind of these findings and being able to put them into some sort of publicly available database um, that's still currently being updated. It's it's definitely an interesting website, but that's kind of actually looking into the case of Darren Dion Van led me to the Murder Accountability Project and not the other way around. <laughs> That's so funny. So I do find that kind of interesting that you have some of these just like almost like grassroots efforts to aggregate the data, because let's face it, like the federal government can put out so much data, but there's also an issue between local police departments reporting to the FBI on things like homicide rates and clearance rates and stuff like not everybody is doing it, Yeah, (laughs) which is another thing that kind of blows my mind. I don't know. I shouldn't be surprised anymore, I feel like, but what are you going to do? Solve murders. That's what you're going to do. Uh, I mean, that's what we're trying. Trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not, you know. Anyway. At least we're, raise awareness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's kind of what I got for you. We're going to put – there's going to be so many links um, in our research oh links God. this week. You don't even know. <laughs> A lot of it is uh, some of just this data stuff that we really encourage you guys to sit and go through. It will probably blow your mind. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's be real. 100%. Yep. If you need something to listen to while you check out the murder data, uh, (laughs) check out this podcast. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember... We're all just pretending here. All right, guys, that has been our show for you this week. We have a couple of things to talk about. Uh, We sure do. (laughs) Some good news and some bad news. Mostly good. I would say mostly good. Uh, What should we should we start with the uh, Fringe Festival? I think. Sure. Would probably be. This is mixed news. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm saying it's like it's like kind of bad, but also kind of good for you guys, honestly, as listeners of the yeah. show. We're going to look at this with the glass half full. Um, so the Elgin Fringe Festival is still going to happen, but they have made the decision to do it all digitally. 
So what's going to happen is you can still buy your tickets. You can still see all the amazing shows, but they're all just going to be recorded. Um, so that's kind of being worked out and hashed out right now. So when we have the finalized information, um, we will share it with you. But for now, you can go ahead and mm-hmm. head on over to the Elgin Finch Festival, um, dot com. Sign up for their newsletter. Go like them on Facebook and Instagram so you can get your information there. Um, but that's where everything will be announced in terms of um, what shows will be happening digitally and how you can purchase tickets and how you can get the link to watch them. So yeah. it's still happening, but now you can do it from the comfort of your home. Yeah, I we're kind of bummed about not being able to do a live show. Obviously, we weren't entirely sure that was going to happen with the current state of things. Um, mm-hmm. in the world. But the plus side is by being able to do a virtual show, folks who listen from all over the world. I mean, if you don't live in Northern Illinois, and you're not within spitting distance of being able to come to a live show, now you'll be able to watch us virtually, which I'm actually yes. really excited about. I kind of thought this actually works in our favor, because we have a lot of listeners across the country, some in other countries. So like, mm-hmm. I, I do like the opportunity for those folks to see us. And it will still be happening in September. I forget the date, but um, you said the so right month good. this time. <laughs> hey, I'm getting hey. better. <laughs> yeah. Our other piece of news is that the True Crime Podcast Festival, which had been canceled, has actually been rescheduled for uh, 2021. Same location, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, you can go to. Well, actually, is it TCPF 2021 now? Is that the website? I don't think I they switched looked. stuff over yet. It's been kind okay. of a strenuous process, but information yeah. slowly coming out. Yeah. So if you guys need more information, if you've already bought tickets, or uh, if you just want to kind of get some updates on what's going on, the best place to look is the uh, True Crime Podcast Festival Facebook page. That's kind of been where they've been posting all of the updates as far as I'm aware, we're still planning on being there, some of us at least. And so... Yeah, I'd, <laughs> well, we'll see what happens the rest of this year. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, yeah. You're a little undecided. We're still working out the kinks, but... um, Yeah, there's been a lot of stuff that's uh, moved from this year to next year. So it 2021 yes. might be a, a very busy year. <laughs> yes, oh my God. So that's that. Otherwise, if you want to check out more stuff like this episode, you can go to our website, badtastecrimecast.com, and we got all of our episodes on there. There you can also find the donate page if you wish to give us a little tip, you like our episodes. We also got some great content up there. I think we, well, I'm not even going to say that. I don't want to put it out to the universe and have it not come true. So (laughs) check out, (laughs) check out our Patreon page, tons of great content up there. You can also find uh, the merch page there, too, if you need a tank top for the summer, a late Mm -hmm. Father's Day present, like a super late Father's Day present. (laughs) (laughs) Just to give to yourself to get you through this miserable summer that we're having. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's all there. BadTasteCrimeCast.com. Go ahead and check it out. But I think that's kind of what we got for today. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Janelle, you sound so sad to be ending this episode. 
Something like that. <laughs> I, I'm left with my own thoughts now. Oh, God. <laughs> um, well, before Janelle totally loses it, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Hopefully. Bye. <laughs> Man, that does not sound very confident. (laughs) Just in case anything else gets thrown at us this year. Good lord. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another.